Thanks for joining us on the Gen Church Wa podcast of Generations Church. We are a community of everyday people who are committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. Right now, we are gearing up for the holiday season. It'll be a formational time for all. You can participate with us during this season by heading over to our website, mygenerations.church, and take a look around. In a world that downplays spiritual integration into everyday life, in this masterclass, I'm going to talk about divisions and factions, sexuality and gender, Christian liberty and philosophy, the gathering and gifting of the church, and how the life, death, and coming back to life of Jesus changes everything. As we continue in our series, Masterclass, we're going to discuss an approach to life that will see you through every change and controversy, through every internal struggle and external chaos. I hope you enjoy the teaching from today's scriptures. Welcome to Masterclass. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, and it says, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of the way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees that what I teach everyone in every church. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how those arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come to you in love with a gentle spirit? Over the last several weeks, what Charity was saying is we have been in this master class series. And the idea is that you can become a master at a lot of things. If you've seen any studies or gone onto the master class website, you can become a master in how to train a dog, how to cook like Gordon Ramsay. You can become a master at how to sing like Beyonce. I bring that up every week because one of these days I'm going to take that class, you know, just because I'm, I'm going to be part of the beehive or, um, or the bayhive or whatever it is. Um, so, so there's all kinds of things that you can become a master of. But what Paul is writing this letter to a group of people in a time and in a place, and he doesn't want them to become a master of one thing. He wants them to become a master at all of life. And his encouragement to them is that in order to become a master at all of life is you must follow the way of Jesus. And so if you're joining us kind of for the first time this morning, whether online or in the room, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul is writing this correspondence to this group of people. And up to this point, he's been dealing with one issue in particular, but he's not done yet. He's got many issues to get to. And so over the last several weeks, if you were to say, Kyle, what has Paul been dealing with as a whole? Well, Paul has been doing We've been looking at Paul's response to divisions within the church. And divisions is obviously something, I think, in today's world that we know a lot about, both external and internal within the church. Paul wants the church to be unified. But there's divisions. There's fractions. There are people who are arguing about the best way to do things, and specifically arguing about whether Paul is the right type of leader to lead them. But Paul's resounding claim 
is not to take it personal, but rather, he says, these divisions within the church are an external manifestation of an internal problem. The Corinthians have taken cultural values to heart instead of their calling. Now, calling can be a nebulous term. Sometimes we toss that word around, that we are called to something. And I'm not talking about the type where you pick up a phone and you dial a number or you just hit that quick thing to someone. I'm talking about a divine purpose. It's a spiritual term, and at its core, calling, specifically when we use it around the church, it's the invitation to become what you are. And that's what we looked at a couple weeks ago. To become what we are, that we are God's masterpiece, that, that we are God's building, that, that we are the place where His Spirit dwells for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And He wants everyone to have that experience, to be the place where God rests and rules. The challenge is, is that we have competing claims in our life, attempting to speak to who we are, to call us to something other than our divine purpose. So last week we concluded, or at least I did, and you can definitely disagree with me. I welcome disagreements. My team would know that firsthand. Um, <laughs> that who we are is first determined by whose we are. And the evidence is clear. You either belong to God or you belong to yourselves. And ultimately, our age thinks it is wise to belong to yourself, while the way of Jesus, the seeming foolish way, is to belong to God. Your actions, how you think, your habits, so prove whose you are. Even if you don't believe that, Paul reminds the audience that on judgment day, all will be revealed, even one's inner thoughts and motives of the heart in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5. One of the areas we as a church want people to become what they are is summed up in a phrase we call everyday family. Our language and our vision is expanding God's family. So one of the ways we want people to improve at in their life to become more like Jesus is to not just to, or to have an everyday faith, to be everyday family, and to live out God's ordained everyday mission. And that language isn't accidental when we talk about family. In the starting of generations, I was actually discouraged from using this family language. And the reason was is because we know this experientially, that we all bring so much baggage when the word family gets thrown out. An experience that when the church uses such language, it can be difficult to separate our dysfunctional, sinful family, or even the good things that our family has done from the messiness that we see inside God's family. We chose that language at Generations Church knowing full well that we all, well, that we all might, well, we do bring a positive connotation and negative connotation into our understanding and projections on the church. See, we often encounter churches that don't aspire to be family or say they want to be family and never quite live up to that vision. And while we know our vision in this formation aspect of being everyday family isn't the most exciting, sometimes it's clunky to say when people say, so tell us a little bit about your church. And you say, 
at least our team has gotten really good at saying this is our vision. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's not pithy. It's not short. It doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue. But we felt that it was important to include that aspect within our vision because that is what we are in Christ Jesus. And Paul's desire for them and us for him us here at Generation Church is to, in fact, be, seek to actualize what we are. And while it isn't the most exciting passages like today's reinforce the need for discovering the church, for rediscovering the church as family and detox from the church as business. And our value progress over perfection sets us on the course to help us live or become what we are. Because in Christ, we have the perfection. We are the perfect family that we so desperately want to live out. But we're seeking to bring that to reality each and every day. And our choices and our habits, our actions and our thoughts. And how we choose to live. And we know we're not going to do this perfectly. But that doesn't mean that Christ's perfection in us cannot be lived out and show some progress. One area of this change happens when you start to make the switch to start to live this everyday family is the movement from a consumer mentality to a contributor mentality. And Paul is actually addressing this within the church. That's one of the reasons the divisions are present within the Corinthian church is because they are so used to sitting back with their arms folded in a clipboard, evaluating the public speakers that come through and saying, you're good, you're not so good. Hey, you stumbled over that word, you're off. It's, it's kind of like that drama club director, evaluating public speakers and saying, yeah, because you aren't so eloquent or you don't appear to be smarter, you don't dress or look a certain way, we're going to write you off and set you aside because we need a leader that seemingly has it all together so that we can hold this leader up in our culture and in our context and tell everyone else, see, we've got it right because our leader looks nice, pretty, and polished. Unfortunately, for, for those of you who call Generations Church your church family, that's not me. <laughs> but that's a good thing, right? Because... The church, as we have looked at, is not built on a charismatic leader. It's built on the foundation of Jesus, bringing us together to be family, and then working that out in our lives. Because it's a beautiful thing when you can live your faith every day, and when people go, man, can you believe what Kyle said on Sunday? You can be like, yeah, maybe, uh, I don't know. But guess what? We've got a beautiful church family who are seeking to live the ways of Jesus. And Paul is saying you can't evaluate what's happening. You cannot evaluate the ministry that's happening based on what you receive because that's a consumer mentality. This is what Paul has critiqued. And he's saying, no, you need to evaluate the church and its ministry not on what you receive or not on what you can achieve, but on what is received by God. So often the consumer mentality seeps in because we think we have to achieve it or we think we have earned it. And Paul is critiquing both of those saying, no, you have received a place at the family dinner table because of your elder brother Jesus and what he has done for you. And so if the church as family 
is the reality we seek to actualize, to live out in our everyday life, then we must contribute to the sustainability of the family and the enforcement of the family values, vision, and culture. Taking our cue not from a motivational speaker, but through those who have modeled the difficult work of Jesus. And not everyone is used to that switch, which is why we provide opportunities around Generations Church to be able to step into community so that you don't have to do this alone. One of the things we have is we have ministry teams. And the reason we have those teams is because it, it takes you from something, being a part of a church that simply you show up and you receive to, or you consume to then where you can step in and contribute. Or it's a gathering of people that talk about spiritual things. We have other gatherings that happen, Bible studies, discussions, type of things that happen throughout the week where together people come together to contribute to the well-being and spiritual growth of others. We have things like activity groups, like a volleyball team, where you can show up and contribute your natural God-gifted spike to win a game. (laughs) But we... (laughs) We do these types of things not to say, look at all the nice ministry programs we have for you, but to invite you to step into a community and say, contribute. Say, hey, this is an opportunity for when the family dinner is set that you can bring a plate, you can bring some turkey, you can bring some mashed potatoes. I'm getting hungry just talking about that. But you can bring some forks, you can bring a dessert that when the table is not already set, but you can bring your gifts and what you have to the table to be shared. And so our groups, our other gatherings, are, are ways that we, can, we help people transition from consuming to stepping in to contribute. And you get to see the best of all types of people. You get to see the moments when Richard or I get a little bit too competitive on the volleyball court Again, so that you don't have some pretty picture of me to stand up and say, but you could say, look, this is an area of Kyle's clearly got some weakness that we, we just need to pray for him. But the reality is we all have weaknesses. And in those moments that we're able to show up and contribute, we realize that we don't have to have it all together because where we are weak, Christ is made strong because he has provided other people in the family to fill in those gaps. And so Paul has spent emotional and spiritual energy and is still and is still spilled ink to bring quarreling groups of people together. And so as he wraps up this section and prepares for the next, Paul shares his motives. He says, I'm not writing to shame you. Paul needs to say this because he has an effect called them idiots for putting personal brand above unity and allowing their context to shape them more profoundly than the cross of Christ. The competing calling in their life was to build life together with the eternal in mind rather than push personal brand, thus proving to themselves in the world that their path was right. And so this letter would have been read aloud into the gathering. And so everyone knows who Paul is referring to when he's essentially called them idiots for putting their context above their calling. And so they'd be kind of squeaming in their seats a little bit, kind of trying to disappear, sinking back in. But Paul's public correction in the church is not a weapon to beat them down, but a call to redirect them. 
you've been around children at all, you're aware that they don't always comprehend stop or no. But even when they do comprehend something, that something then compels them to keep focusing on whatever their attention is on when you ask them to say, when you say stop or no. Therefore, one of the most effective ways of correction for young children is redirecting them. Paul's warning is not a public spanking. Rather, it's a public redirection to the cross and God's familial heritage. And as they feel the weight of his claim, the plea is for them to step up rather than shrink back. For you have countless instructors in Christ. Paul is not anti-multiple influences in learning, but he clarifies, you have many fathers. See, the passing on of the faith is relational. There's this tool that I want to bring up real quick called the Johari Window. Maybe you've heard of this before. So it's got four squares. I got a picture of it. I should hear in a second. Um, so the Jar- Johari window is just simply a tool that helps you become more self-aware. And so there's a known to self, not known to self, known to others, not known to others. Most of our life, the open self is what's public, what can be seen. The not known to others, the kind of the hidden self Peace is what you know, but you haven't quite shared with others. There's the unknown self where it's others don't see it and you don't see it. It's only known to God, and that's obviously an opportunity and area for growth. But the one I want to address is the blind self. The one where you have no clue, but everybody else in your life goes, hey, there's something there. See, we all have areas of our life that other people can see and notice something in our life that we are completely unaware of. And sometimes we think we're in the right or we think we're we're prideful or we're better or we've got it right. But if we don't have people in our life with faith background who can speak into our life, then there is no one who can call you out on your crap. And you need people who are fully aware of who you are and whose you are so that they can look at the areas where you are unaware and say, hey, Kyle, this this needs addressed. You think you're saying this, you think you're communicating this, but actually this is what people are hearing. This is what people feel when they're around you in this context. No matter what you see or what you experience, you need people in your life who know whose you are. Remember, who knows that you are a loved child of God, that you are the place where God rests and rules. And that can say and can see into your life. You're not quite living it up to it in this area. And not saying it to shame, but saying so that you can become more aware. So that you can be the presence of Jesus wherever you find yourself. See, you also need people you can imitate. And what I love about this type of tool in this square is that sometimes we want to hide ourselves off from others. Those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, one of the best things that you can do is not let that hidden self be so hidden, but actually open it up to others to be able to see and to learn. Because see, the call of Christ is to imitate Jesus, and it's for his followers to imitate him. 
But one of the best things that we can do as followers of Jesus is demonstrate that progress over perfection mindset that show that we don't have it all together. Here are our areas of weakness. Here's where we're still growing and learning and allow others to see that area. We all need people that we can imitate, that we can follow tangibly, that we can look at, at maybe it's parenting, or, or maybe it's a, a spousal relationship, or maybe it's how to interact with work in a healthy way. That people who are dearly like devoted to Jesus, but have shown growth over the course of their lives, not to say I am better than, but here's where Christ has worked. And see, without intimacy, you'll become frustrated because all you try to do is copy the patterns and habits of others without really knowing the person, which is why followers of Jesus, we must open ourselves up to allow other people to speak into, but also become more vulnerable and share where our weakness is so that people can learn to imitate us, not in our perfection, but in our weakness, so proving God's strength to become clear. See, here's the kicker, though. Sometimes we want people to follow us or imitate us, and some of you are like, I don't want anybody to imitate me. I don't want anyone to follow me. But a part of the Christian life is looking at others, becoming like them, so that the faith is passed on. But intimacy always precedes imitation. And imitation without intimacy leads to frustration. See, part of the issue is that the Corinthians don't want to even imitate Paul because of the difficulty. Why would I do something that gets me beaten? Intimacy with Christ enables imitation of him. Life relationships are messy. Tim Ferriss, in an interview on his podcast with Sheila Heen, uh, they were talking about difficult conversations, kind of talking about some of this. Is how, how do you let someone know that they are unaware of this aspect of their life, this behavior or belief that's sabotaging some good aspect or potential in their life? Or how do you, how do you bring something up to someone that says, hey, I, I, need, I need more from you. I need, I need you to be a little more honest and vulnerable with me so that we can journey through this life together. And we know that's difficult because life relationships are messy. But Sheila Heen had this one throwaway comment in the interview that said, our conversations are our relationships. Our conversations are our relationships. What is my relationship with my wife? It's a thousand conversations in a thousand different contexts and shared experiences. The verbal and nonverbal cues while Paul didn't have a phone to just call up the Corinthians, it seems like, a, like good conversations are harder to have. And he's saying, you're not quite listening. I need you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. I know that you have seen and you have heard that we're persecuted and we try to endure while we're slandered and we try to respond graciously. And I know that doesn't seem desirable, but it's worth it. And so apply to Paul's relationship with the Corinthians at the heart of the matter is if they can undermine Paul's authority in their life, then they don't have to deal with some of the hard truths about their sin and selfishness. They go from feeling good about life to having to deal with their own depravity, with their own mistakes and their own failures. And knowing this, that intimacy always precedes imitation, that passing on the faith is relational. Paul sends Timothy 
to be representative of his care for them until he can come personally. Because he knows that some things can get lost in translation. It's the misreading of a text or forgetting that some people don't hear tone very well and knowing that that's hard to hear, but Paul says you can discern some motives by presence and practicing the way of Jesus. In fact, that's why he says when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Paul is sending Timothy until he can come there personally so that Timothy can demonstrate what it's like to love God and love people well. See, this is the greater role of leadership within the church, being people actively becoming more like Jesus so that others can follow until Jesus comes to us in his return. The evaluation of these leaders is not the pettiness of their words, but of their character. And holding that in view, the Jesus follower also knows that Paul has already said the foundation for faith isn't built on them because they will fail. The foundation for the faith is built on Jesus. And so they must be redirected back to him. And they will do that by living out their faith within the midst of the Corinthian church and in particular, responding to their words of division and divisiveness with love and grace. See, for it's Jesus who brings us all into the family as our elder brother. Timothy's presence will remind them of Paul's aim and his aim is to change more than their thinking. In light of his lack of mobility, to be there in the moment, he sends Timothy to change them from division to unity. To pick up on the analogy, their brother in the faith is that reminder that their course is not a maverick one. It's an important reminder, especially as he prepares to address other behavior. I mentioned a moment ago that this is a transition of sort. Paul is getting ready to address gender and sexuality. He's getting ready to address um, gifting and gathering of the church. He's getting ready to address faulty beliefs about the resurrection. A lot of hard things that have implications for their life and our lives today. But he's saying, before we can even get to all of that, we must come back to the power and the way of Jesus. And so as he prepares to address other behavior, that their sin is an effect on the whole. And if Paul is representing Jesus' way in and among the church, their disbelief in his coming, because he mentions, again, it's a correspondence. It's a conversation. He says, it sounds like you don't even believe that I want to come. It's a symptom of rejecting his authority. Their unwillingness to set aside their pride will be displayed in lack of power. There are some who are unwilling at this time to set aside their use of worldly wisdom. See, the kingdom has already been inaugurated by the resurrection of Jesus, and the coming of the Spirit is characterized by the power of the Spirit. And here's the line of ultimate demarcation between their view of spirituality and Paul's. What does it mean to be spiritual? Paul is saying they were living in the Spirit as though the future had dawned in some measure of fullness. Hence, they were above the weakness that characterized Paul's life and ministry. Meaning, let's pretend that my weakness isn't there. Let's pretend like there's, there's nothing that I need to work on. 
Let's pretend or, and live as if there's no progress to be made in my everyday faith. And Paul, in contrast, said, no, here is my weakness. Here is who I am. Because when I show you all of who I am, you will see the power of God work in me when I don't have the strength to work. The moment when someone says you are stupid or dumb and you want to return and say, no, I'm not, or fight back, you actually don't have to verbally say that because you know whose you are and you can respond with grace and truth. The moment that says you are defined by your fears and your failures, you say, no, I'm not because the power of the Lord is bringing change in my life. I can connect the dots where God has worked. And that is the power that Paul speaks of. He said, when you pretend that weakness isn't there, when you pretend that there is no growth to be had, you're actually robbing God of the very power that he wants to bring to bear in your life. And Paul is so desperate to see power come to reality in their life that he asks, how should I come to you? I don't know whether to bring a, a rod or in grace. You can see the conversational, the relational pieces. I want you to be so changed that I'm asking the Holy Spirit in this moment, help me do the right thing so that they can get it. Have you ever played pinball? There are these bumpers on there in the game, like, and I'm not talking about the video game one. I'm talking like the old school, like the big machine ones. You know, you got all the bumpers and all the contraptions, and their only purpose there of the bumpers is to knock your ball and put you, put you off your game. Now, the more punishment you take, the more points you can rack up, but you can't pay attention to the bumpers. It's just noise. You've got to steal your nerves and keep your eyes on the ball because the game's actually down at the flippers. And the flippers, they can send that ball flying up the ramp so fast it'll make your head spin. And that's where you score the real points. You just have to let the flippers do the work. Sometimes, and just call it dumb, silly luck, you realize that that dumb ball is heading straight down the drain. And it's completely out of reach of the flippers. And you think, all right, well, I guess that's the end of the road, right? It's my last ball, and I'm plumb out of quarters. And that's the moment you conjure the strength of a mother whose baby is trapped beneath a car. And you tilt the hell out of that machine because you can. And Paul is saying, this isn't the end of the road. I put my quarters in, and nobody's going to forget that I pulled the plunger. And I got balls less to play. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And I don't know how I need to come, but I'm going to get the hell out of you because the power of God is in you, and you need to live that power. He is doing whatever he can to convey to them the love of a spiritual father that there is some stuff in them that needs to be out. And if he's got to figure out how to get that pinball machine up metaphorically to make the game still go on, he's going to keep going on. So you've got to keep going on because keep your focus on the real work, hitting the flippers, taking a beating. That's what Paul was willing to do for them. And he says, up to the present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated. We are homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are avowed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. 
even with all that they know, Paul knows, and he wants them to know the real power. The power of God can come out of nowhere and tilt their life so that the hell gets right out of them because the game's not over and you're too valuable to God. And Paul's saying, I'm going to help you live up to this divine calling because he says earlier in the letter, you're either heading towards perishing or you're heading towards life. And he wants them to head towards life in every aspect of their life. And Paul wants them to know that they will not imitate the self-sacrifice nature of Jesus unless the intimate relationship between he and them have been restored. Unless they're willing to admit that they've been heading in a wrong direction. That they've held up their pride. That they've held up their wisdom. That they've held up their way of thinking of right and wrong. That they've said, no, I would rather respond To, con- or to unkind words with unkind words or to hate with hate. Paul said, no, you need to set that all down. And let me show you how to do that because I know that you have reviled me, you have cursed me, you have slandered me, you have treated me poorly. And even in the midst of all that, my relationship, my love for you will not allow me. No, nay, my love of God will not allow me to respond in an evil way to you. Because he believes that Jesus has come to rescue and renew them, and Paul is willing to live that out. That who they are and who they are becoming is because of Jesus. And he will do, he will model, he will love, he will implore. He will bring a rod or he will respond graciously. He wants them to know and to be on the path towards life. They have idolized charisma. It's shown up in pride. And Paul disarms pride with love. His love comes out through weakness, through self-sacrificial behavior, and through the reliance of God's power to work. As you think about how should you live today, my hope and my prayer is that some version of this message has awoken you or tilted you just enough to say the game's not over. Your time has not, is not over. It, life is not over. It's not done. I know you're hurting. I know you might feel a lack of hope. I know you might feel like everyone has abandoned you. And maybe you're even nervous to give the, the idea of the family of God one more chance. To the best of my ability, and I can I'll speak for our team here, to the best of our ability as a church, we're going to do our best but Christ first, to be because of Jesus' people and live in a way that if we have to, we got to tilt that pinball machine up so to get you on your life and your way towards a God who loves and cares for you. The game's not over. You're not done. You're not the sum total of your past, your fears, your failures, your mistakes. You are who God says you are. And we're committed at Generations Church to demonstrate that in as many ways and opportunities as we can. Let's pray. God, you are good. Right here in this moment as we prepare to be led in response 
God, if there is an area of our hearts that need to become made known, I pray that you bring it to light. God, if, if we need to have a conversation with someone, I pray that we do that. I pray that we don't leave here without reconciling. God, if we feel like there's someone here who is desperate for life, I pray that they leave here without saying yes to you. God, that we start that conversation today. God, I pray that those here know that your love, that your kingdom has come in power. And I pray that we live that right here in Salmon Creek and in Vancouver so that people can know the goodness of God's family. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.